Now, I can experience this flower, um, consciousness, mind, sense organ, plus flower. Of course, light must be there and all those conditions must be there. Like this flower, I cannot make consciousness, I cannot put it here and experience consciousness. You know, I can't see consciousness, I can't hear it, I can't, I can't smell it, taste it, touch it. So, can uh, I experience Turiya? No. It's not an object of experience. But Swami Vivekananda says in one of his Jnana Yoga lectures that you must not go away with the feeling that the ultimate reality, consciousness, is unknown. It is more than known. How is it more than known? In and through every experience, every experience is possible because of the Turiya. Every experience is possible because of consciousness. It is consciousness. Through the mind and the eyes which sees these things. It is consciousness which is through the mind and the ears hears all this. It is consciousness which ultimately gives us the experience of smelling and tasting and touching. The experience of thinking and understanding and remembering and forgetting and loving and hating. All of those experiences are possible because of consciousness. Now this is the only way in which we experience consciousness. And this experience is not temporary. It doesn't come and go. All experience is this only. This consciousness only shining through in various mediums is giving us experience. This is basic Sankhya epistemology. Consciousness itself gives us experience. Without uh, consciousness, no experience. Therefore, in that sense alone, we are actually experiencing consciousness all the time, whenever you are experiencing. It's like light. Whenever you are seeing something, you are seeing light. Is it possible to see light briefly? I mean, in that sense, if you are seeing, you are seeing light. Um, it's like when you are looking at pottery, lots of clay pots. Is it possible to see the clay briefly? No, as long as you're looking at the pots, you are seeing clay. But what is necessary is you must recognize that it is clay. That's the only thing. Otherwise, the question might be that, oh, so in every experience, Turiya is evident. Yes, it is, but only to the enlightened. If in every experience, Turiya was evident, then everybody would be enlightened. Everybody would say, yes, I know, I, know, I am the Turiya. It's always, it's always evident to me. But generally, we don't have that feeling. We don't think so. We don't think so. This is ignorance. It is all the time available. All the time experienceable within quotes. Not experienceable like an object. Experienceable as the experiencer or the illuminer of objects. In that sense. When I am looking at the waves in the ocean, is it possible just by the grace of the Guru to see the water just a little bit? No, you are seeing water all the time. But if you think that you don't see the water, you have to be introduced to the water. Looking at clay, at pots, if you think that I don't see clay anywhere, I see pots, then you have to be introduced to what is clay. If you're looking at ornaments all the time, and gold ornaments, and I don't say I see the ornaments, but I see necklaces, rings, and all the, where is the gold? You have to be introduced to what is gold. Then you see all, all the time, that is gold, you're, you're seeing it. Oh, now, gold is an object, clay is an object, water is an object. And so, you can see it directly like that. It's an example. But the peculiar problem with consciousness is it's not an object. It's you. It is I. It is the pure subject. And therefore, uh, it cannot be objectified like clay or water or gold. Um, so, Turiya is never ever experienced and always experienced. But the sense of the word experienced is different in two cases. One is it's experienced through mind and senses. No. Turiya cannot be experienced through mind and senses. Another one, experience means recognized in every experience. So there is a whole philosophy in Kashmiri Shaivism based on this called Pratyavigya, which means recognition philosophy. So that is Turiya. Now, there is still some sense to the question. Why? What happens is this. It's a temporarily little bit I caught a glimpse of Turiya, of Sakshi, Atma, Brahman. Philosophically, the, the statement is not correct, but psychologically, it makes some sense. Because what happens is, um, 
when the mind is calmed, especially through meditative techniques, one may get the intuition that I am awareness. Fact is that I am awareness all the time. But when the mind is calm, it becomes more evident. That is the whole logic behind Patanjali Yoga. The whole logic behind seeking Samadhi. That it becomes very clear that I am consciousness. Once one comes out of Samadhi, one will can look back upon that and understand what was happening there. So in that sense, one might feel when the mind is flickering, uh, I I am not centered in it. I I understood I am the witness consciousness, but now it's not there anymore. One may feel like that. Philosophically, that's not correct. You are always the witness consciousness. But one may feel like that because of the association with the mind or identification with the mind. In pure and concentrated mind, it is evident. In disturbed mind, it's not evident. In that sense alone, one might say, I have a temporary glimpse of Turiya. But not otherwise. All right. Uh, the, next, the, the next question is from Raji Dha. Can you uh, can you repeat that? Yes. The next question is from Raji Rajdeep Da. Why does Drigdrisha Viveka suggest that only the Avachina theory truly explains the jivahood and not the other theory such as the Jida Basa conception of jiva? Drigdrisha Viveka Shloka number thirty two. All right, that's a fairly technical question but very interesting. There are different theories which he has mentioned. Uh, the theory of uh, Abhasa, theory of Pratibimba. Abhasa means uh, appearance. Uh, Pratibimba means reflection. And uh, Avacheda means limitation. Appearance theory, reflection theory, limitation theory. Now, what's all this? All these are to explain a big question which arises when you say there is only one consciousness. Consciousness is one reality. But then how does it appear to be so many? There are so many of us here. And each of us, it clearly feels that we are different consciousnesses. It feels like that. I mean, it may be that there is one consciousness, but we all feel different. Not only bodies, um, minds, and we also feel like we are separate conscious beings. How can one consciousness be individuated, can be decomposed into many consciousnesses, as if? The Gita also says, Avibhaktam chabhuteshu vibhaktam ivachastitam. Undivided in all beings, it appears to be divided. But yes, it's good to say that it appears to be divided. But how does one reality become divided or appear, even appears to be divided? And by the way, this is not an ancient question uh, which puzzled some Indian philosophers a thousand years ago, literally a thousand years ago. Because it, this thing, this, these divisions into schools came uh, about just after Shankara. So 1,200 years ago. But it has tremendous contemporary relevance. Those who are in consciousness studies, they know that one problem which um, puzzles thinkers in, you know, those who advocate panpsychism, that there is one consciousness in the universe. So one objection against the theory of panpsychism is, how does this one consciousness of the universe, also known as cosmopsychism, how does this one consciousness of the universe appear as so many consciousnesses? So many living beings, so many human beings and other living beings who are conscious. Uh, how does one consciousness appear as many? So it's a new question. Right now in the 21st century, if you see literature on panpsychism, which is advocated by our own David Chalmers here in New York University, and now some others are also joining the bandwagon. Um, there is Tonini, for example, who who has propounded the integrated information theory of consciousness. That's the leading theory in consciousness studies today. They all talk about that, the possibility that consciousness is a fundamental reality of the universe. But then this problem is there. How does it decompose into, if it at all does decompose, but how does it become many? 
So the answer, uh, many people just don't know that this question was considered more than a thousand years ago by the Advaita philosophers. And they came up with not one, but three different answers. And these three different answers became three different schools of Advaita Vedanta. One answer is Avachedavada, the limitation theory. Limitation theory is it's very, it's not difficult to understand. It's suppose you look up at the sky. It seems to be one undivided sky, big, vast, unlimited blue sky. But suppose you do this now. You just put your hand up like this. And you look through your hand, through the gaps between the fingers, and now it looks like multiple V-shapes. One and two and three and four. Right? And it seems the sky has got these divisions. But there's no divisions in the sky. It's, it's because of the presence of the hand, which is doing that, which gives the appearance of demarcations in the sky. If you look at the sky through a window, I mean, you have grills in the window, and you will see multiple shapes. And sky seems to be cut up into those shapes. Uh, I, I hope you understand the, the example. It only seems like that. It's not that the sky is actually cut up. Uh, if I put my hand up there, it's not that the sky is cut up into five parts. It just looks like that because of the hand. Now, because of the appearance of Maya in consciousness, Brahman, just appearance. And Maya can be divided and subdivided. And so it seems that Brahman can now technically, uh, or, or at least in principle, it's possible to appear as divided. So that's the limitation theory. Avachedavada. The appearance of uh, Maya and its products. The causal body and many causal bodies. And the subtle body and many subtle bodies. And the physical body, many physical bodies. It appears to demarcate consciousness into multiple consciousnesses. So that's one theory. If you suddenly see that, just like understanding, looking at the sky like this and realizing, yes, of course the sky, it looks different, but it's these, these differences are here, not in the sky. If you do that, you, to in this case of bodies and mind, you will see I am one consciousness. Now the sec this theory uh, is called Avachedavada, limitation theory. The second theory is called Pratibhimbavada. Pratibhimbavada means reflection theory. The reflection theory um, is like sun is in the sky, one sun. But if you put ten pots with water in them, you will find ten little sparkling suns in that water. And not only that, those little sparkling suns also have some of the, a tiny bit of the power of the original sun. Because they can also illumine a little bit. The water inside is illumined by the presence of the light there. So that reflected sun, which is nothing other than the original sun. Nothing means, nothing other means it's the sun's light which is there. That reflected sun functions like the original sun. And that is called a reflected sun or Pratibhimba. Like consciousness now is reflected in the mind, the subtle bodies, Sukshma Sharira. The pot is like the physical body, the water in the pot is like the subtle body, and consciousness is reflected in the subtle body. And that's what we feel right now. Our minds feel conscious. If you just look inside, thoughts feel aware. Whatever thoughts you have, emotions you have, ideas you have, memories you have, desires you have, perceptions you have, all of them have one thing in common. They all feel aware. They all feel lit up. You're aware. So that awareness is not Atman itself. It's a reflection of the Atman in the mind. That is called uh, Pratibhimbavada. And that reflection is actually nothing other than the original Atman. That just as um, the moonlight is literally nothing other than the sunlight. It is literally the sun's light which comes to the moon and then bounces off and is reflected back to us uh, as moonlight. So, that is called Pratibhimbavada. The third theory to explain how one consciousness appears and functions as many is Abhasavada, appearance theory. Now it's just like the reflection theory, the only subtle difference. The reflection theory says that the reflected consciousness is nothing other than the original consciousness. Just as reflected sunlight in the 
pot of water is nothing other than the it's just the original sunlight being reflected there just as the reflected moonlight the moonlight is nothing other than sunlight but the the appearance theory says no 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 the reflection is false the reflected consciousness in the mind is not atman it is false it's an appearance the atman is different it has nothing to do with the reflection now it's a subtle difference both are reflections but one affirms that the reflection is nothing but the original like reflected sunlight is nothing but original sunlight another one says that the reflection is not real you don't say it is nothing but the original there the example the mirror and the reflected face will be uh, more appropriate it is true that uh, the reflected face is resembles the real face in the mirror uh, real face but what's there in the mirror is not the real face the real face is here in that sense it's not the real face not like the sunlight which is physically there in the um, on reflected from the moon or from the pot of water you see the subtle difference both are reflections but one is real in the sense it's nothing but the original a reflection is nothing but the original in that sense like reflected sunlight is sunlight but reflected face is not the real face real face is made of skin and tissue and reflected face is not made of skin and tissue it's only glass there if you touch it's light optically um, reflection is produced there reflected fa- the original face is i reflected face is not i so the reflection is not the original it's an appearance this appearance is called abhas abhasa means appearance a shadow an appearance three theories limitation theory avachchedavada uh, reflection theory pratibimbavada and uh, appearance theory abhasavada and reflection theory appearance theory slight difference is there but important difference the reflection is real appearance is unreal how did these come about the reflection theory the pratibimba theory is um, all three are supported by the way by the brahma sutras and by shankara's own writings all three are derived from shankara's writings sometimes he calls uh, it a reflection you know the multiple conscious beings they are reflections of the original sometimes he calls them limitations of the original sometimes it's an appearance of the original all three can be derived from shankara's original writings who derived these so the source of the reflection theory pratibimbavada is padmapada acharya shankaracharya's own direct disciple first disciple and maybe his favorite disciple so that's a reflection theory and then the um the limitation theory was okay the appearance theory abhasavada was developed emphasized and developed by another of shankaracharya's uh, disciples the massively erudite sureshwaracharya who wrote the commentaries on shankara's commentaries on the upanishads uh, and uh, so that is called he is called the vartikakara the writer of the vartika commentaries sureshwaracharya he developed the appearance theory abhasavada and the other one the limitation theory was developed by uh, the great philosopher uh, and say uh, and um, uh, the very saintly person uh, vachaspati mishra that is called the bhamati school uh, the avachchedavada was emphasized by the bhamati school the uh, pratibimbavada was emphasized by the vivarana school and the abhasavada was emphasized by the vartika school schools of what they are all schools of advaita vedanta the three schools two of them are well known vivarana school and bhamati school and technically if you want to many people don't know that technically which school do we belong to we belong to the vivarana school which traces itself back to padmapada acharya shankaracharya's disciple so vivarana school um there is the bhamati school of uh, vachaspati mishra and the third one never really took off as a school but it was a wonderful um for the development of advaita vedanta so called vartika school because it uh, was started by sureshwaracharya who wrote the vartika sub commentaries on shankaracharya's commentaries now why am i saying all this the text which he is talking about drigdrishya viveka is possibly written by vidyaranya swami 
possibly sometimes it is attributed to shankaracharya but that's unlikely but the language and the logic there seems a lot like the panchadashi so vidyaranya swami is supposed to be the writer um maybe now vidyaranya swami follows the vartika school to some extent mostly so you will find a lot of influence of the appearance theory that's why the talk of chidabhasa appearance theory is there chidabhasa appearance of consciousness the reflection of consciousness in the mind is nothing other than atman or brahman that padmapada or reflection theory would say but if you see the drigdrishya viveka the the author of drigdrishya viveka probably vidyaranya asks the question what is the connection between the atman and its reflection its appearance in the mind consciousness and its appearance in the mind the consciousness which we experience in the mind and the real consciousness which you are remember you are not the little uh, dot of light in the water in the pot you are the actual sun you are not the pot you are not the water you are not even the little shining light in the water in the pot you are the actual sun what is the relationship between the that and the um, reflection there there he uses the appearance theory like the mirror and the face in the mirror what is the relationship between you and the face in the mirror your your real face and the face in the mirror actually no relationship there's no relationship it appears when you stand in front of a mirror the moment you stand in front of a mirror uh, your reflection will appear there but that reflection and your real face has no connection at all but we forget we are as, as if we have forgotten our real face and we think that that's who i am there in that mirror therefore uh, the author of rigdrishya viveka says what is the relationship between the pure consciousness witness consciousness and its reflection in the or its appearance in the mind he says only stupidity is the, is the relationship uh-huh. bhranti janyam it's born of error we don't know this therefore i think i am that one no it has nothing to do with you it's the very nature of the mirror to generate a, an image when you come in front of it this one has nothing to do with that one you are this not that so this is the logic behind it original consciousness appears to be split up into millions and millions of so called consciousnesses but only appears to be how do you explain that limitation theory avachchedavada reflection theory pratibimbavada appearance theory abhasavada all developed over a period of 1000 1200 years um these are the theories to explain each of them has an important point to prove and it's useful all three are useful which is the best one no best one which is the correct one no correct one all three are supported by shankaracharya's own commentaries and the brahma sutras also good uh, the next question is from anil bave whenever the question of free will is asked to a jivan mukta it is said that humans have no free will as such everything is predestined if so how is karma and the results of karma applicable to a human being is he or she not innocent why does he or she have to suffer so much so there are two questions here the larger question of free will and the question of karma and its effects on us hmm first let me take up the question of karma karma is causality cause and effect now cause and effect is observable in this world karma is the same principle applied to the moral life of human beings we do good and bad and the results are good and bad what we sow we reap so this idea is present everywhere in uh, indian systems all of the indian thought systems except the materialist uh will accept the hindu systems the six systems of hindu philosophy um the six systems of buddhist philosophy i mean the one way of categorizing buddhism is to see it as six different schools uh, not six sorry four different schools the six schools which are 
orthodox based on the vedas and six schools of thought which are not based on the vedas six schools not based on the vedas are the materialist charvaka the jaina school and, and it's also a little unjust to uh, put all the vast jaina literature uh, under one umbrella but anyway the jaina school and then the four schools of uh, buddhism the sotrantika vaibhashika yogachara vigyanavada and the madhyamaka shunyavada now out of these 12 schools in sanskrit is called dwadasha darshana the 12 philosophies out of these 12 schools the six uh, non vedic and the six vedic schools schools which we know very well nyaya vaisheshika sankhya yoga purva mimamsa and vedanta only one does not accept karma i mean law of karma as we understand it our good actions lead to merits lead to happiness ple- uh, pleasant life evil consciously done evil or bad actions leads to demerit or sin and leads to unpleasant consequences dharma punya sukha adharma papa dukha this is the law of karma and clearly from this comes the entire concept of uh, multiple lives and reincarnation punarjanma why because when we are born we are different uh, different parents different uh, abilities different uh, you know race gender so many differences between us already so much differences there that means the cause of these differences must be before birth so we must accept we existed in some form before birth and all the things that we do in this life we don't seem to get the results of that in this life at all that means the results will be uh, if the results are going to be there at all we must be there to experience those results so we will be existing after death before birth and after death and that leads to the idea of many lives um and people here in uh, the west in america for example uh, they find it little difficult and and uh, uh, they are not comfortable with this concept but i wonder why and the only one who would be actually uncomfortable with this concept would be the materialist a mainstream scientist who agrees that who feels that life begins uh, with this birth or at conception and ends with the death of the body there's nothing more no soul no nothing left over in that case no past lives no future lives no karma nothing of that sort is possible so a materialist a committed reductionist materialist would not at all accept multiple lives or karma but the whole western tradition is based on christianity and judaism the judeo christian um, uh, you know world view we have immortal souls so these souls exist after death you may not accept multiple lives but you do accept existence after death if you at all believe in christianity or uh, judaism then you do accept existence after death in fact why just christianity and judaism all the western pre-christian uh, the pagan so called pagan religions you know the greek religions or the roman religions or that was in with northern africa there were religions all of them uh, talked about existence after death and in fact all religions in the whole world is no religion which talks which can accept that there's no nothing after death every one of them talks about a post mortem existence post body existence you can't have a religion without that so if you accept the existence of the body uh, existence of the soul after the death of the body then multiple lives is just an extension of the same thing it shouldn't be so shocking um now the question is that so karma if we don't remember our past lives and uh, we have done something in our past lives and then we experience the results now and then we suffer now isn't this a kind of unjust punishment not necessarily remembering something is not necessary the idea is that if i remember the things i have done wrong then i can learn from them then the, the i can see the connection you may and then the punishment may feel um, justified oh i am being punished for what i did then but what good does it do yeah. what good does it do 
Does it really help to reform us? People may think that if I remember what I did wrong, then I will change my ways. Not necessarily. Why are so many people repeat offenders and put in jail? What is our greatest sorrow? Our greatest problem, the, the, uh, the, you know, the existential problem of human life in moral terms is that we know what is wrong and yet we do it. And we keep on repeating it. So we know it, we remember it, and yet we don't learn. We do learn over a long period, slow, painful process. So learning is not from memory actually. Memory is a flimsy thing. A flimsy thing. Then how does it work? How do we learn and change? We change through samskaras. Over lifetimes, we have a certain intuition, certain kind of character is developed through repeated actions and this character is inherited in lifetimes. So children have different characters, have different natures. When they Same family. Not that they remember past lives, but they are just different by nature. How did that difference come in, difference in nature come? Through experiences of past lives, through samskaras. And that is real character, that is real change. Change in samskaras is the change in character, not memory. Karma does that. Karma and its effects on character slowly build up character and help us in spiritual growth. Now, the question of suffering. Suffering really does not come because of karma. We think so, but no. Really suffering is due to ignorance. Look at the difference between the so-called enlightened and those who are not enlightened. So-called who have become jivan muktas, enlightened in this very life. And those of us who are not. We suffer from karma. Karma uh, is working for them also. Karma works for everybody. Nabhuktam kshiyate karma janma koti bhi. In a million births also, the effects of karma will not dis- disappear unless they are experienced. So karma will give results. But for the enlightened ones, they are not affected. What effect does it have on you, the real face? What is done to the uh, reflected face? You are seeing your face in the mirror. Somebody comes and polishes the mirror. Do you feel your face has been polished? No. Suddenly the mirror is cracked. Do you feel your uh, face is cracked? No. The reflection may appear cracked. But the face is not cracked. The enlightened one has, is not affected by the effects of karma. Enlightened one, suffering. If you say, are you really suffering? No. The classic example of Sri Ramakrishna suffering from uh, cancer. And uh, Hari, was Turiyananda, asks him, Sir, how are you today? Say, I am in pain. This is hurting. I cannot eat. And then Hari says, but sir, I see that you are in great joy. And Sri Ramakrishna, instead of saying, what do you mean? I am suffering from cancer and you are saying I am in great joy. He says, oh, the rascal has found me out. Uh, in Bengali, That means, all the effects are being experienced. Of, of what is happening in the body and mind will be experienced. And yet, you know, the enlightened one knows, it has nothing to do with me. Just like a reflection in the mirror. I am free of it. So enlightenment saves you from suffering. Not, you are not suffering because of karma. Actually we are suffering because of ignorance. Now as to the question of free will, always accept that you have free will. Free will does not apply to Jeevan Mukta. That's a much later concept. As, as, as long as our spiritual life continues, free will is to be taken for granted. All the scriptures give us teachings based on the idea that we have free will. Otherwise those, scriptures, those teachings will not make any sense. Why give teachings to somebody who is not free? So all moral teachings, spiritual teachings, everything is given with the understanding that we have free will. Society functions with the idea that we have free will. You can't have a justice system to punish the perpetrators of uh, crimes unless you believe that they have free will. They had a choice not to do it. But they did it anyway. And then they have to be punished. Otherwise you can't punish. Somebody who has inevitably has to do it. How can, can you punish an animal? You can't. You can train an animal. But you can't punish an animal. Because pun- an animal is not supposed to have free will. So, um, though I think dog and cat owners 
will dispute that. Is that clearly they have free will, <laughs> and they are up to no good all the time. <laughs> so, take it for granted that you have free will. Exercise it. Ultimately, no free will. But that's a that's a, that's in the long run. That's the final story. The next question is a, a wee bit longer. Um, it's from M. Banerjee from West Bengal in India. We learned from the Vedanta Sara class that consciousness in association with cosmic causal body is Ishwara, and consciousness in association with cosmic causal body and, cos and cosmic mind is Hiranyagaba. In Mandukya Upanishad, we learned about Hiranyagaba, cosmic mind in dream state, Ishwara, God the creator in deep sleep state. But in the previous class of Katha Upanishad, you mentioned about the Hiranyagaba as Brahma, the creator of the universe, and also the limit of maximum happiness possible. Happiness of Hiranyagaba is 10 to the power of 20 times the highest possible human happiness as per Taitriya Upanishad. Please clarify. One, who created the universe, Ishwara or Hiranyagaba? Two, how can Hiranyagaba, which is consciousness associated with all subtle minds, become so blissful that he gives maximum possible happiness? Okay, that's a mouthful. <laughs> so many technical terms. In, but it's not very difficult to uh, cut through to the essence of the question. First of all, the term Hiranyagarbha. Literally, it means the golden womb or the golden egg. And this is a concept... You know, if you look into not just uh, in ancient India, but ancient China also, they had this concept. And some other ancient cultures have this concept of the whole universe was born from a golden egg. Literally, it means Hiranyagarbha. Hiranya means golden. And Garbha, egg or the womb. Now, in Katha Upanishad, I said this is Brahma. In the Upanishads, this Hiranyagarbha is also called Brahma. What is this Hiranyagarbha? Let's understand this carefully. It's, it's not very difficult to understand. First of all, let's look at ourselves. We have a physical body. And within this physical body, we feel a subtle body. By subtle body, I mean physical body is clear to everybody. This physical body, which is which you can touch and you can weigh and all of that. But inside we feel feelings, emotions, memories, ideas, thoughts. That's clearly not the physical body. Why not? Well, first of all, it's not physical. It's not uh, obvious to anybody uh, outside. A doctor can examine this physical body and they can examine what's inside the physical body. But no matter whatever instruments the doctor uses, it can't discover your thoughts, feelings, emotions. Then, Swami, FM, fMRI scan. You can detect the uh, act electrical activity in the brain. Yes, that's all you can detect. Show me one scan which has ever revealed the taste of coffee or the, um, the color of a flower. No, you have revealed bursts of electricity which might correspond to some of those experiences. That's all. And the connection between electrical activity in the neurons of the brain and the first person experiences which we call thoughts and sensations, memories, desires. No, the connection is not at all clear. What is the, how is it possible at all? That's the hard problem of consciousness. So that is the subtle body. And beyond that, Vedanta says there is a causal body, which we sort of, uh, the closest we can understand that is in deep sleep. I, with all my experience of the universe and the physical body and my mind, all of that seems to disappear down a dark hole in deep sleep. But it's not gone. It all comes back when I wake up. Therefore, let's call that deep sleep a seed state. Like a seed. It all becomes potential. That is called the causal body. From which germinates, pops up the subtle body and our experiences of the physical universe in the waking. Alright. So this is the three states. Causal state, which we experience in deep sleep. Um, and the physical and subtle. The subtle which we experience in itself in dreams. And the physical which we experience in the waking. Remember, in the waking, all three are present. 
when the physical body is present the subtle body is also present not only you are having a physical experience internally you are having a subtle experience and behind that the causal body is always present all three are there to give us this experience of the physical world two are there causal body and subtle body to give us the experience of the dream world one is there causal body to give us the experience of deep sleep now deep sleep dream waking causal causal plus subtle causal plus subtle plus uh, physical this is at our level now it's not that i alone exist i can see a vast world out there everything the whole world is there so i am not the only physical thing in existence here is this entire mass of uh, physical beings living and non living this is a cosmic physical body individual physical body cosmic physical body individual um, subtle body in in the here cosmic subtle body all of these subtle bodies in all the living bodies all summed up together and just like i have an individual causal body um, this um, entire universe in all living beings sentient beings there is an individual there is a cosmic causal body consciousness plus this um causal body is called i sarvapriyananda the deep sleeper consciousness plus all causal bodies is ishvara the god of the universe i sarvapriyananda with this um, causal body and this mind now i am the person sarvapriyananda same consciousness plus uh, all causal bodies and all subtle bodies is hiranyagarbha the cosmic mind same consciousness and i the consciousness with this one causal body and one subtle body and one physical body is the jiva called sarvapriyananda the same consciousness with all causal bodies all subtle bodies and all physical bodies is uh, the cosmic being called virat or vishwarup of course it's another matter that i am also vishwarup but uh, <laughs> yes, that's just that's neither here nor there <laughs> so that cosmic mind consciousness plus all causal bodies plus all subtle bodies is hiranyagarbha another name for that is brahma the brahma in uh, the hindu uh, in the range of deities so brahma is actually hiranyagarbha now question who is the creator of the universe god or or uh, hiranyagarbha uh, both who is the creator of your dream world the causal body or the subtle body when the subtle body is there causal body is there or not yes it has to be there so the entire mental universe uh, is hiranyagarbha but also has ishvara behind it without ishvara no hiranyagarbha or in our puranic terms without narayana vishnu no brahma what is the artwork which depicts this so vishnu is always a couch potato is always reclining on his couch is the cosmic serpent sheshanaga thousand hooded serpent and from his navel a lotus blooms and on that lotus who is sitting brahma and when the universe is created god creates the universe but how does he create the universe not not himself when you make a house you don't start go and make a make the house you give the contract to a to a vendor to a contractor who will do it for you so brahma is the contractor so he is the one who gets it all done and god the causal body it's a nice way of depicting it because the causal body doesn't seem active at all it's just potential it's just there but because it's there now the mind can become active so the first level of creation is the subtle creation the mental world so so you see the hindu cosmology is inside out from the way we experience how do you experience deep sleep dreams waking so uh, inside out modern scientific materialism is outside in first a cosmos was created how big bang no consciousness mind and no cosmic mind nothing of that sort big bang so when the universe went bang and then all the stars and planets were created in time 
um, and then in some remote location of the universe, uh, one tiny planet, in that somehow matter became, this organic matter came and organic matter somehow became living matter and living matter after millions of years of evolution generated sophisticated nerves and uh, nervous systems and brains, their consciousness and mind came up. So it's an outside-in way of looking. But the Hindu cosmology is inside out, the way you experience life, from inside outwards. So who created the universe? Brahma did, but without Ishwara, without Narayana, it's not possible. Uh, cosmic mind did, but cosmic mind cannot function without the, um, the uh, causal uh, being that is Ishwara. Second, maximum happiness. We have so little, we have little happiness and lots of misery in our minds and if you put all minds together you'll have lots of misery then how is it that Brahma has this 10 to the power 20 <laughs> human happiness this is actually taken from Taittiri Upanishad there is a section called Ananda Mimamsa a calculus of happiness and there it says Brahma the highest being the cosmic mind has the maximum possible happiness unimaginable happiness you think about it you'll die so don't think about it <laughs> And Brahma has this kind of happiness. How is it that Brahma has so much happiness? Uh, if it's just the summation of all the minds, remember that happiness, if you read the Taittiriya Upanishad, it depends upon enlightenment. So Brahma is enlightened, free of all desire. Brahma is the greatest karma yogi. Uh, we are karma yogis, we do a little bit of karma yoga. And we think we've done a lot. Brahma does the best karma yoga. He creates the entire universe or without any desire of his own. <coughs> and so, Brahma is without desire and fully enlightened and therefore Brahma sees his all minds without any limit and therefore happiness is maximum. Where is happiness felt? Then you might must say that Ishwara's happiness is even greater than Brahma's uh, because Ishwara is higher, subtler than Brahma. But ha the felt happiness, the experienced happiness requires mind. The activity of the mind. Deep sleep, yes, you are happy. But you are not experiencing happiness in the way that you are experiencing in the mind. When the mind is there, you feel joy. You feel pain also. But Brahma, because of enlightenment, has no connection with pain. And because of being all minds together, is completely aware of his unlimited nature. And so the happiness is maximum. As um, it says, that Akamahata, um, who is not limited by or destroyed by desire. So the maximum extent of desirelessness, highest manifestation is in Brahma. So the highest happiness also is in Brahma. Yes. Time. We have time. Jaydeep Sen asks, Swamiji, I am not my mind. What good is this knowledge to free myself if I'm still stuck seeing the same mind? When Advaita Vedanta says the witness consciousness is ever free, how is it really free if it cannot at will choose what it wants to witness? Mm. How is the witness consciousness free if it cannot at will choose to what it wants to witness? Notice the words. Choose, want. Want, where is want? Is want in consciousness or in the mind? Wanting is in the mind. Desire is in the mind. Choice, is choice in consciousness or in the mind? Choice is in the mind. I don't like my mind. I would like the mind of Vivekananda. Truly. But who is thinking that? Is consciousness thinking that? Or thinking is always done in the mind. Consciousness is ever free of the mind. This mind or Vivekananda's mind. It's wonderful to have Vivekananda's mind. And one can work towards that by changing our own mind, purifying it, focusing it through the practices of Karma Yoga, Bhakti Yoga, Raja Yoga. So it, it changes the mind. And you can have a much better, much more improved mind. But remember, witness consciousness is ever free of the mind. Being free of the mind does not mean, oh, now I can go and return this mind to the shop and get a better mind, an upgraded mind, you know, iPhone 8 or something like that. 
I want, I don't like this mind. I'm going to return it. It's become old and slow. I'm going to get a new, um, shiny new mind. No, it doesn't work like that. Who thinks like that? The mind itself is thinking like that. You, it has to be realized that I am consciousness, which is free of the mind. This thing requires Vedantic Shravana and Manana. Again and again hearing something like Drigdrishya Vivek or Aparokshanubhuti or the Upanishads. You hear that, think about it. This question arises when the mind has not been sufficiently analyzed. It's still consciousness mind mixed up. Then such a feeling comes. I want to be free of this mind. Who is saying it? Mind. You really want to be free of this mind? Every day you are free of this mind. Deep sleep. You are completely free of this mind. That which is free of the mind in deep sleep is also free of the mind in waking and dreaming. You are not stuck to the mind. It's something that appears, plays around in you and disappears back. That consciousness is the same in all minds. Or all minds are appearing in that one consciousness. Okay. Uh, one more, yes. Zoha asks, In previous lectures, you have said that pain is also a thing which we experience, same as bliss. Both are experienced in the mind, in the spectrum of emotions. Then why is Atman just pure bliss? Why can't it also be pure pain? If it's not, then it is because pain is related to the body-mind and outer world, while bliss is the experience of mere absence of it. Please clarify. All right. Um, so, so in my earlier lectures I have said that pain is also in the mind. I haven't said it. Everybody knows it. <laughs> I don't have to say it. This is the common problem of all humanity. In fact, all sentient beings, all jivas, human beings and animals and all, we all experience pain. So pain is a fact in the mind. But as you have said, range of emotions, the ananda, which is translated as bliss, is not an emotion. When you say atman is, or the witness consciousness is ananda or bliss, it's not an emotion. It is the very nature of consciousness which is different from the emotion. That's why it's not trans uh, translated as pleasure or joy. It's translated as bliss. And not the emotion of being feeling blissful or feeling joyful. Emotions are in the mind. Pain is in the mind. Pleasure is in the mind. Then what is bliss? Bliss is the very nature of consciousness, the witness itself. Um, one way of understanding this would be I am awareness whatever the mind is undergoing I am awareness one must first understand this otherwise one cannot see what is going on in the mind unless you are awareness itself I as awareness remain the same throughout whatever happens in the mind pleasure or pain only because I am aware I can have the experience of pleasure only because I am aware I can have the experience of pain Pleasure and pain are different. They come and go. Awareness behind both is the same. Does not come and go. Now, this awareness does not come and go, is not subject to birth and death, is not subject to change, and in fact does, is the same in all beings, or rather all beings are in it. So this being the same, not coming and going, not changing, not increasing and decreasing, unlimited, this unlimited awareness itself, this unlimited nature of awareness itself is ananda, bliss. Another word for it would be purnatva, completeness. Another word for it would be ananta, unlimited, infinite. That's why in the Taittiriya Upanishad, our real nature is defined as satyam jnanam anantam brahma. Existence, consciousness, limitlessness. You would have expected existence, consciousness, bliss, sat, chit, ananda. But what did the Upanishad say? Existence, consciousness, limitlessness. What, what limitlessness of what? Limitlessness of existence, consciousness. Limitless existence, consciousness. Swami Vivekananda says, Truth, 
knowledge and bliss that follows both in his song of sanyasi very interesting way of phrasing it truth means existence knowledge means consciousness bliss that follows both means once you realize that i am that truth knowledge existence consciousness that is bliss itself that will be reflected in the mind manifested in the mind of the enlightened being as joy as the absence of pain but in itself the witness consciousness is neither pain nor pleasure but when it when it is realized it is realized it is experienced it is felt in the mind that realization produces unlimited joy in the mind that's why the enlightened one is joyful or blissful so uh, i am sorry to rush a little today but thanks to the wonders of modern technology i am now scheduled to speak in dublin ireland <laughs> so <laughs> i have to take leave of you here and join the audience in dublin Thank you very much and take care and stay safe. Om Shanti 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 Hari Om Tat Sat Shri Ram Krishna Rupa Namastu